Hello and welcome to episode 61 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in the true context of the weekly podcast. Paper Review, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Podcasts, and now streaming on the iconic media platform. And the first subject this week is Iran again. Just an update on that. This is an article in the Times of Israel. I talked in the last episode about Israel's fundamental role in the Iran attack and US, British, and other countries' foreign policy. And this is an article here, very much on the same lines as far as the Iran attack. Israeli intel helped US carry out strike that killed Iran's Soleimani, report says. Israel helped the United States in the operation that resulted in the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the powerful head of Iran's elite Quds Force, the U.S. report said over the weekend. According to an NBC News report late Friday, the Jewish state, Israel is not the Jewish state, and even Jewish historians dispute that. It's a fake state that was set up after World War II, and there's a whole backstory to how that happened and why that happened, which I'll get into another time. According to an NBC News report late Friday, the Jewish so-called Jewish state, was involved in the January 3rd operation, handing the Americans key intelligence details. The information helped confirm intelligence provided by informants at Syrian airport that Soleimani had been on a nighttime flight from Damascus to Baghdad. The report said, quoting two sources with direct knowledge of the operation and other U.S. officials briefed on it. After his plane landed, it was a simple matter of using drones to track him, exiting the aircraft and entering a car which was later targeted with four missiles. Israeli media reported the day after the strike, the U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were briefed Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu ahead of time about the U.S. plans to kill Soleimani. Pompeo phoned Netanyahu on January the 1st, ostensibly to thank him for Israel's support in efforts to combat Iran and after the attack on U.S. Embassy in Iraq, which was another country invaded by America and Britain for Israel. Before departing for Athens the following morning, Netanyahu alluded to very, very dramatic things happening in the region. We know that our region is stormy. Very, very dramatic things are happening in it. We are alert and are monitoring the situation. We are in continuous contact with our great friend the US, including my conversation yesterday afternoon, he told reporters at Ben Gurion International Airport. Hours later, Soleimani and several top officials from Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps were killed in the airstrike at Baghdad's International Airport, along with an Iranian-backed Iraqi militia commander. Netanyahu had been the only non-U.S. leader who appeared in the know about the planned operation beforehand, the New York Times reported Saturday. Well, of course he had, because Israel were ultimately the driving force behind the attack. The Reuters news agency reported Thursday that a series of Syrian and Iraqi informants are suspected of providing the U.S. with the information that led to Soleimani's killing. The suspected informants, two security employees at Baghdad Airport and two workers in private Syrian airline Sham Wings, gave the intelligence about Soleimani's secret flight from Damascus to Baghdad, the report said, quoting security officials, Baghdad Airport employees and Sham Wings employees. Tensions between Tehran and Washington have risen significantly since the U.S. carried out the airstrike that killed Soleimani. That's the idea, provoke Iran into a conflict. In the wake of the killing, the Iraqi parliament voted to press the government to expel U.S. troops from the country and Iran announced that it will no longer abide by any of the limits of its 2015 nuclear deal. Last week, a former leader of Iran's Revolutionary Guard said that the cities of Tel Aviv and Haifa could be targeted to avenge Soleimani after previously alleging that Israel leaked information about Soleimani's whereabouts to U.S. forces. The U.S. launched the airstrike that killed the Iranian general after a U.S. defense contractor. The U.S. launched the airstrike that killed the Iranian general after a U.S. defense contractor which will be controlled by the same cult that controls Israel, was killed and several American and Iraqi troops were wounded in a rocket attack in northern Iraq, which was in turn launched in retaliation for U.S. 
airstrike which killed Iranian-backed militants at several sites in Syria and Iraq. See, when you see the words US military or US defense or US airstrike, it's actually Israel using America as a vehicle. We keep that in mind, then we'll be closer to the truth. Whenever we hear about a US military attack or action, Supporters of the militant group subsequently broke into the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. I also came across this interesting article about the leader of the Council on Foreign Relations, which is one of these organizations that interfaces between organizations and secret societies closer to being in the shadows and the public. I talk about all that more in pay-per-view in print. CFR president says the world will be the battlefield after Iran escalation. Clear the idea. This is on prisonplanet.com. The president of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard N. Haas, says that the world will be the battlefield following a dramatic escalation in tensions between the United States and Iran. Fears of a wider war arising after Iran's Quds Force General Qasem Soleimani was killed during an airstrike near Baghdad airport. The Council on Foreign Relations basically runs American foreign policy on behalf of Israel. Haas warned that those who thought any war with Iran would look similar to previous military campaigns were being incredibly naive. Make no mistake, any war with Iran will not look like the 1990 Gulf War or the 2003 Iraq War as it will be fought throughout the region with a wide range of tools versus a wide range of civilian, economic and military targets. Military targets means targets and places Israel wants to bomb and target. The region and possibly the world will be the battlefield, tweeted Haas. He went on to assert that developments would lead to Iraqi authorities exerting great pressure on the US to leave their country. When the president of the Council on Foreign Relations is talking, he's basically saying this is the agenda for American foreign policy on behalf of Israel. One sure result of the U.S. strike is that the era of U.S.-Iraq cooperation is over. The U.S. diplomatic and male presence will end because Iraq asks us to depart or our presence is just a target or both. The result will be greater Iranian-influenced terrorism and Iraqi infighting, said Haas. Meanwhile, a source described as being in close contact with senior security officials in the Trump administration said that Iran could respond to the killing of Soleimani by launching a massive cyber attack. A cyber attack inside the US is the most likely way that Iran could retaliate stateside, according to Axios. So the pieces are being moved into place, and it was all planned a long time ago, as I explained in the previous episode. And the next subject this week is keeping on the theme of Israel, the Rothschilds. This is in The Guardian. FA consider investigation of Port Vale's Tom Pope over Rothschild's tweets. Port Vale striker Tom Pope gained attention for scoring against Manchester City but can now be subject to an investigation by the Football Association after posting a series of tweets linking the Rothschilds to every bank on the planet. When asked by a fan to predict the World War III result, Pope tweeted, we invade Iran, then Cuba, then North Korea, then the Rothschilds are crowned champions of every bank on the planet. When another Twitter user highlighted why the FA might want to investigate a potentially anti-Semitic remark, Pope continued to defend himself. How is it racist? He replied. Seriously, is someone out to destroy me or what? Someone asked me how does World War III end and I replied, when I said countries were invaded and they all have, and they have all the banks, what's the problem with that? Seriously. In another post, he tweeted, They own the bloody banks. There's no racial malice whatsoever, and anyone would say the bloody same. I didn't choose a side. I merely stated they own the banks, and that's it. It is understood the FA are looking into the matter and could launch an investigation depending on the outcome of talks with both the player and his club. The outcome of the investigation, if they launch it, is a foregone conclusion. But drawn special attention before Port Vale's because they wouldn't dare be anything else. 
Pope would draw special attention before Port Vale's FA Cup tie with Manchester City for tweeting last year that he would score 40 goals a season if he faced John Stones every week. And Julie scored Port Vale's solitary goal in the Etihad, leading to a frosty post-match meeting in the home dressing room between Pope and the England defender. They all drowned me in the Man City players, but John would speak to me said Pope's goal was also his 109th for the club a post-war record. It was a little bit awkward, I shook his hand, but he wasn't too happy. And then it goes on to talk about the football side of it. And Pope believes that many people who see that there's another reason apart from the official one for the endless invasions of countries in the Middle East and Near East and North Africa. He believes that it's happening for money and commodity acquisition like oil and banks, which on one level they are happening for that reason, but there's a bigger picture here, which I talk about in episode 49. Pope is correct, however, to say that the Rothschilds are in the banking system. I've said this myself before now. The reason this is branded anti-Semitic is because the Rothschilds are believed to be Jewish, when in fact they are Satanists of the Sabatini Frankist cult variety, which I expose in the episode All Roads Lead to Israel. The speciality of Sabatini Frankists is that they never appear as their real belief, but the belief or religion they're posing as, or the community they're infiltrating which is a speciality of Sabatine Frankism. So the Rothschilds pose as Jewish people when they're actually Sabatine Frankists, Satanists. And it's partly because of the Rothschilds and this Sabatine Frankist network that the idea of an anti-Semitic trope has come about because the idea is that if you're talking about a tiny few people controlling different areas of society, ultimately, globally, and working to their own agenda, through those areas of society, using them as a vehicle. You must therefore be anti-Semitic, even if you don't mention Jewish people, because it's believed that the Rothschilds, etc., are Jewish when they're Sabbatean Frankists. So it's not Jewish-based in any way. They hide behind Jewish people, not least because then they can use the claim of anti-Semitism to try to silence or censor people. To understand where the image of the classic rich Jew comes from, we need to understand Judaism a religious belief, not a race, in the context of other religions. Christianity, Islam, and other religious beliefs don't allow for the lending of money with interest charged, as they see it as sinful. But Judaism does. However, Jewish people are forbidden to charge interest on money to fellow Jews as loans without interest. And that's known in the Jewish community as Shadeka, meaning charity or justice, righteousness, as opposed to racism, which is what it really is in truth. The Association of Hebrew Free Loans, a global organization, was founded to this end by Jewish financier Jacob Schiff in New York in 1892, and others followed later. The Schiff family and the Rothschilds, who are the innermost core of this Sabbatean Frankist cult, are fundamentally connected in terms of global manipulation, and both are not Jewish, but Sabbatean Frankists posing as Jewish people, and disingenuously claiming to have the interests of Jewish people at heart. Explained them. Episode 10, why anything even mildly criticising Israel Zionism or mentioning Jewish people in anything other than a positive tone is jumped on as anti-Semitic, when in many cases it's simply reporting the truth. Tom Pope eventually released a statement, rather predictable statement, saying, Following the reaction to my response on Twitter about the Rothschilds, I was unaware of any link between the Rothschild family and the Jewish community. If I have caused offence to anyone, I'd like to apologise enormously, as this was never my intention. Once again, someone falls to their knees in fear of being branded racist and anti-Semitic for speaking the truth. People being offended is irrelevant to the truth or otherwise of any statement, and it's the truth we should be focusing on, not people's feelings. Talking of offence, do you know who 
needs to hear this information more than anyone else. Jewish people. Because they've been monumentally lied to by this fake Jewish cult for generations. A cult, as I said earlier, who don't have the best interests of Jewish people at heart. And who hate Jewish people as much as they hate every other belief in religion and non-religion on the planet. See, this Sabbatine Frankist cult has no belief. It has no national affiliations. It has no borders. The only belief it has is occultism, Satanism. Outside of that, they hate everyone equally. Speaking out, no matter what the intimidation and pressure to be silent is the answer which will expose this cult and its manipulations globally, the innermost core of which is the Rothschilds. And, as I said, nobody needs to hear this more than Jewish people. People say the Illuminati control everything. Diversion, diversion, diversion. This cult created what became known as the Illuminati, which is just another vehicle for them. I explain in All Roads Lead to Israel the story behind that. Where even the name Illuminati actually came from, which is all part of this story. The Rothschilds are not at the top of the Illuminati pyramid as much as they are the innermost core of the Sabatine Frankist cult. I say, and I'm not saying this goes for everybody who does this, but I say it's very possible that the idea of the Illuminati controlling everything is at least partly an intentional manipulated diversion. The true history of Judaism and its relation or non-relation in truth to this cult is what Jewish people need to hear more than anyone. And once we understand who's really controlling everything, then we can understand not only why things are happening, which is important, but the mentality driving what's happening. And the next subject this week is space. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk reveals customers connecting to his low-cost Starlink internet. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk reveals customers connecting to his low-cost Starlink internet service will need an antenna that looks like a round UFO on a stick in order to connect to the satellites. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk has revealed new details about the highly anticipated Starlink venture. The billionaire tweeted that the terminals used to connect to the train of satellites will look like a thin, flat, round UFO on a stick. Musk also shared some simple instructions on how to use the user terminal. You just plug the device in a socket and point to the sky. SpaceX's satellites are designed to provide low-cost broadband internet service from low-Earth orbit, and the company plans to release hundreds or even thousands of the satellites into orbit over the next year. Starlink is said to work similar to satellite television, where customers need a physical antenna to gain access to the service, according to Telserati. The Starlink user terminal will need to be pointed towards the sky, but their position will need to change as the satellites are constantly moving. And just like the satellite used for television, in the case of SpaceX, they will simply have to be plugged into a socket in order to work, according to Musk. Tech Tycoon has been promising the world internet from his satellites, leaving many to question if his dream will actually become a reality. In October 2019, Musk shared another tweet with the hopes of silencing his critics. Sending this tweet through space via Starlink satellite, he wrote, and then hours later confirmed it worked. This is the first time orbiting satellites have been used, and Musk hopes to provide the entire world with access to the high-speed internet one day. Musk shared the tweet, sending this tweet through space via Starlink satellite at 2.03am on Tuesday, October the 22nd, and hours later he said, Well, it worked, sending the internet into a frenzy. Some users were excited that the satellites have successfully performed, while others were sceptical about Musk's announcement. The CEO filed paperwork with the International Telecommunications Union for the operation of 30,000 more Starlink satellites earlier this month, which would bring the count up to 42,000 if approved. The firm added to a satellite constellation by launching another 60 into orbit. SpaceX launched 60 mini-satellites into orbit to bolster its Starlink project to a grand total of 180. One satellite is covered in a dark coat and designed to appease astronomers. 
Sky gazers have repeatedly bemoaned the shiny spacecraft, claiming it interferes with their view of the cosmos. It is hoped the anti-reflective test material will be the first step in a compromise to allow Starlink to thrive while not interfering with views of space from Earth. The cluster of satellites separated successfully from a Falcon 9 rocket after its launch from a Cape Canaveral, Florida at 9.19pm ET. Billionaire Musk hopes they will eventually form a constellation of more than 1,500 satellites around the planet and beam down internet to everyone across the globe. What is Starlink and what are its goals? Elon Musk's SpaceX has launched the third batch of its Starlink space internet satellites, taking the total to 180. They form a constellation of thousands of satellites designed to provide low-cost broadband internet service from a low Earth orbit. The constellation, informally known as Starlink and under development at SpaceX facilities in Redmond, Washington. Its goal is to beam super-fast internet into your home from space. While satellite internet has been around for a while and has suffered from high latency and unreliable connections, Starlink is different. SpaceX says putting a constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit would provide high-speed cable-like internet all over the world. The billionaire's company wants to create the global system to help it generate more cash. Classic mainstream media. There's a bigger picture here, which I'll get to in a minute. Musk has previously said the venture could give 3 billion people who currently do not have access to the internet a cheap way of getting online. It could also help fund a future city on Mars. Helping humanity reach the Red Planet is one of Musk's long-stated aims and what's what inspired him to start SpaceX. The company recently filed plans with the Federal Communications Commission to launch 4,425 satellites into orbit above the Earth, three times as many that are currently in operation. Once fully deployed, the SpaceX system will pass over virtually all parts of the Earth's surface and therefore in principle have the ability to provide ubiquitous global service, the firm said. Every point on the Earth's surface will see at times a SpaceX satellite. The network will provide internet access to the US and the rest of the world, it added. It is expected to take more than five years and $9.8 billion, $7.1 billion pounds of investment, although satellite internet has proved an expensive market in the past and analysts expect the final bill will be higher. Now, people have asked to get as far as it's all about money and go no further in other words they don't know there's an agenda why would Elon Musk spend so much money on a project that he's unlikely to be able to recoup as much money as you would think someone would want to if they were spending that much money but it's not a financial project it's an agenda project which means money's no object Musk compared the project to rebuilding the internet in spaces it would reduce reliance on the existing network of undersea fiber optic cables which crisscross the planet. In the US, the FCC welcomed the scheme as a way to provide internet connections to more people. Well, I've talked many times before, not least in episodes 10 and 11, about what's known as the cloud or smart grid, which is being justified by the hoax of human-caused climate change, which is a lie, the biggest the planet is being used to transform. I take human-caused climate change apart in pay-per-view in print. A book I've just finished writing, which is at the printers now, which will be available soon. All this talk of building a smarter Britain and a smarter energy grid are different ways of saying building a technological sub-reality. This sub-reality will be a bubble of information and therefore perception which firewalls human minds from an awareness of anything outside the frequency walls of the smart grid. The foundation of the cult's control of humanity is control of perception. It's all a giant mind game and it has to be because there are too few of the cult compared with the general population. I mentioned last week that part of this agenda is satellite control. One cult agenda goal realized by satellites is firing 5G, this cumulatively lethal, more than cumulatively in some cases, wireless communication system which I've talked about in episodes 8, 12 and 22. Another cult agenda goal realized by satellites is of course surveillance. The cult world army, which I talked about in the last episode, includes missiles from space, just like in a James Bond movie where there's some evil dictator who's threatening to bomb a certain place so the people in charge don't acquiesce to his demands. That's basically the situation. The world army won't just be robotic AI control, 
military law enforcement fused into the same thing, which has already happened to an extent, especially in America, through the 1033 program in America where military hardware is transferred over to law enforcement. That's now, already. It will also be the threat of being bombed from space. In terms of space itself, there does seem to be an agenda behind this constantly recurring theme evident in entertainment from the proclamations of Silicon Valley billionaires and celebrity scientists. All over the place, this theme of going into space and colonizing space and terraforming a planet, Mars specifically, that seems to be the planet talked about most often because that's the only planet in our solar system capable of being terraformed and lived on. And when something's everywhere, out of nowhere, there's often a cult agenda reason for it. Watch this space with regards to that subject, I say. Interestingly, on the subject of technology control, this is an article I came across this week on LinkedIn. It was written in December 2019. But it's very interesting. What is the Internet of Bodies and how is it changing our world? This is written by a futurist, one of these people who makes predictions on technology and has at least some awareness of where all this addiction to technology is going. Have you heard the term, the Internet of Bodies? That may conjure up a few thoughts that have nothing to do with the true nature of the term, but it's about using the human body as the latest data platform. At first, this concept seems quite creepy, but then when you realise possibilities it creates, it becomes quite exciting. Here we explore what the Internet of Bodies is, some examples in use today, and a few of the challenges it presents. When the Internet of Things connects with your body, I've talked about the Internet of Things in episode 50. It's basically a continuation of the Internet of Things. When the Internet of Things connects with your body, the result is the Internet of Bodies. The Internet of Bodies is an extension of the Internet of Things and basically connects the human body to a network through devices that are ingested, implanted or connected to the body in some way. Once connected, data can be exchanged and the body and device can be remotely monitored and controlled. There are three generations of Internet of Bodies that include Body External. These are wearable devices such as Apple Watches or Fitbits that can monitor our health. Bluetooth as well. Another example. Body internal. These include pacemakers, cochlear implants, and digital peels that go inside our bodies to monitor or control various aspects of our health. Body embedded. The third generation of the Internet of Bodies is embedded technology, where technology and the human body are melded together and have a real-time connection to a remote machine. I've said before in pay-per-view that there's a three-step process to technological control. Holdables, smartphones, tablets, etc. Wearables, Bluetooth, Apple Watches, Fitbits, and implantables which are microchips and nanotechnology. And I came across a treasure trove of documentation for chemtrails, because nanotechnology is coming from chemtrails. I mean, when you hear people like Raker as well, this Google executive, Google Silicon Valley, saying that everything in nature will become intelligent, how is that going to happen unless technology, nanotechnology, to achieve that is dropped from the sky? I came across a treasure trove of documentation for chemtrails when I was writing pay-per-view in print and I talk about that in the book. Anyway, article goes on. Progress in wireless connectivity in materials and tech innovation is allowing implantable medical devices to scale and be viable in many applications. Examples of Internet of Bodies device in use or development. The most recognized example of Internet of Bodies is a defibrillator or pacemaker, a small device placed in the abdomen or chest to help patients with heart conditions control abnormal heart rhythms with electrical impulses. In 2013, former United States Vice President Dick Cheney got his Wi-Fi-connected defibrillator replaced with one without Wi-Fi capacity. It was feared that he could be assassinated by electric shock if a rogue agent hacked the device. Defibrillator. How did they find the heart in the first place? 
A smart pill is another IOB device. These pills have edible electronic sensors and computer chips in them. Once swallowed, these digital pills can collect data from our organs and then send it to a remote device connected to the internet. The first digital chemotherapy pill is now in use that combines chemotherapy drugs with a sensor that captures, records and shares information with healthcare providers with the patient's consent regarding the drug dosage and time plus other data on rest and activity, heart rate and more. Smart contact lenses are being developed that integrate sensors and chips that can monitor health diagnostics based on information from from the eye and eye fluid. One smart contact lens in development aims to monitor glucose levels that will hopefully allow diabetics to monitor their glucose levels without repeated pinpricks throughout the day. Taking it up a notch is the brain-computer interface. It's been around for a while that, where a person's brain is actually merged with an external device for monitoring and controlling in real time. The ultimate goal is to help restore function to individuals with disabilities by using brain signals rather than conventional neuromuscular pathways. But not all internet bodies use cases are for healthcare reasons. Bioengineering company Biohacks has embedded chips in more than 4,000 people primarily for convenience. In one widely reported example, 50 employees of Three Square Market agreed to have an RFID microchip the size of a large grain of rice, similar to what's embedded in pets to be able to identify and locate them when they are lost, implanted. This chip allows these employees to gain access to the building without a key, pay for items with a wave of their hand at the vending machine by deducting the amount immediately from their account rather than use money and log on to their computers. See, this is the way this technology enslavement is sold, convenience. The situation of US Vice President Cheney getting a defibrillator not connected to Wi-Fi for security reasons illustrates one of the biggest challenges faced by Internet of Bodies technology. How to secure the devices and the information they collect and transmit. Nearly half a million pacemakers were recorded in 2017 by the US Food and Drug Administration over security issues requiring a firmware update. The security challenges faced by Internet of Bodies tech are similar to what plagues Internet for things generally, but there can be life and death consequences when IOB devices are involved. Additionally, IOB devices create another cyber security challenge that will need to be safeguarded from hackers. I say it's very possible that these life and death risks are designed to be exploited to encourage people to comply with authority or one press of a button and the article goes on. Privacy is also a paramount concern. Questions about who can access the data and for what purpose need answers. For example, a device that monitors health diagnostics could also track unhealthy behaviours. Will health insurance companies be able to deny coverage when a customer's IOB device reports their behaviour? A cochlear implant could restore hearing, but it might also record all audio in a person's environment. Will that data remain private? Well, of course it won't. As Internet of Bodies tech continues to grow, regulatory and legal issues will have to be resolved and policies built around the proper use of the technology. But the goal is not the proper use of the technology, it's control. And this author says at the bottom that he regularly writes about management and technology trends and has also written a new book about AI. I talk about this in more detail in episodes 10 and 11. So we really are looking at complete control of the human form when it comes to the cult's agenda, not least the technology agenda, which they are driving through Silicon Valley, which they own. And either we let it happen or we address it now. One of the ways we can address it now is to address the addiction to technology and for parents to not give in to their child's demands for technology and not to buy them technology because it's just another step on their enslavement and everyone else's enslavement if we allow it. And the next subject this week is keeping on the theme of space aliens. This is in the Telegraph. 
Aliens exist and may already be among us, says first British astronaut. Dr. Helen Sharman, who went into space 28 years ago, said it is without a doubt that all sorts of forms of life are alive in the universe, but perhaps we simply can't see them, as they are so different to humanity. Aliens exist, there's no two ways about it, Dr. Sharman told the Observer magazine. There are so many billions of stars out there in the universe that there must be all sorts of forms of life. Will they be like you and me, made up of carbon and nitrogen? Maybe not. It's possible they're here right now and we simply can't see them. In 1991, Dr. Sharman became the first Briton in space after hearing a call for astronaut applicants on the radio while driving home from work. Despite fitting the criteria, she almost decided against applying for the program but decided to chance it. Self-belief and a can-do attitude changed my life, explained Dr. Sharman. I ticked all the boxes but thought they wouldn't choose me so I wouldn't bother. By the time I got home, I realised that if I didn't actually apply, then they couldn't choose me. Dr. Sharman beat over 13,000 others to run a spot in Project Juno, which was partially designed to boost London Moscow relations by sending a Britain to the Russian space station Mir, MIR. Her eight-day mission transformed the then 27-year-old into a national hero, yet according to Dr. Sharman, her achievement is sometimes forgotten. In 2013, the UK Space Agency released statements describing Tim Peake, who travelled to the International Space Station in 2015, as the UK's first official astronaut, seemingly forgetting Sharma's own trip into space. Dr. Sharman said, When Tim Peake went into space, some people simply forgot about me. I've never defined myself by gender, and I continue not to do so. People often describe me as the first woman in space, but I was actually the first British person. It's telling that you would otherwise assume it was a man. That's a good point she makes there, about not defining yourself by gender especially very topical nowadays. Why do we have to define ourselves by all these labels that we're given? The article continues. Throughout her life, Dr. Sharman has had to contend with the challenges often presented to females breaking the mould, but it's always been adamant her gender was not going to stop her. Although 28 years have passed since Dr. Sharman went to space, she said she will never forget the view of the Earth from the space station. There's no greater beauty than looking at the Earth from up high. I'll never forget the first time I saw it. After takeoff, we left the atmosphere and suddenly light streamed in through the window. We were over the Pacific Ocean. The gloriously deep blue seas took my breath away. Whether or not people believe in aliens is irrelevant to the fact that an alien invasion is planned as a possible means of selling the idea of a world government and world army, planned by the cult. The official line will be to meet the threat of a possibly hostile alien invasion, when the truth is that a world government and army, eventually robotic anyway, as I've said, have long been foundation pillars of the elite's agenda. The official line will be to meet the threat of a possibly hostile alien invasion, when the truth is the world government and army have long been foundation pillars of the cult's agenda. This plan for an alien invasion has become known as Project Bluebeam. It's interesting that even mainstream science accepts that our universe is a tiny frequency band. Science says that compared with the mass of matter in the universe, the electromagnetic spectrum, in other words the light spectrum, because that's what light is, electromagnetic radiation, the electromagnetic spectrum is 0.005%. But we don't even see that. We see a tiny fraction of the 0.005% called visible light, a tiny fraction of the light spectrum. Also, again according to mainstream science, every second the body, not least the DNA, is receiving around 10-11 million impressions of reality encoded in the photons of light. I've talked about DNA in far more detail in episode 53 part 2 and how it's very relevant to human life the fascinating story i tell in that episode it's called a brief history of time so according to mainstream science every second the body not least the dna is receiving around 10 11 million impressions of reality encoded in the photons of light which are the smallest unit of light photons the brain takes those impressions and filters them down to around 40 to construct our visual reality so there's just a bit of what exists that we don't see. 
And then you ask the question, what's outside of that? I mean, infinity. There's everything else that exists. So when people say there's no such thing as aliens, what they mean, or non-human life, I prefer the term non-human life, but what people call aliens, what they mean is there appears to be no such thing as non-human life within a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of existence. Nearly everything that exists, we can't see. The possibility of alien life is becoming ever more accepted in the mainstream. However, we need to ask why this is, after the very idea for so long being entirely dismissed. The answer is because of the plan to sell a fake alien invasion, and we need to remember that if it happens. And the next subject this week is gender. This is in the Daily Mail. Psychiatric nurse launches legal action against NHS Tavistock Clinic that offers experimental puberty blocking drugs to children as young as nine who want to change gender. A landmark case to stop the NHS from prescribing experimental puberty blockers to children who wish to undergo gender reassignment will be taken to the High Court. Former psychiatric nurse Susan Evans, 62, who previously worked for the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, became increasingly concerned that young children were being given experimental treatment without what she believed were adequate assessments. Now lawyers acting for Ms Evans will lodge papers to the High Court this week in order to commence legal action against the Trust which runs the UK's only gender identity development service in North London. The case is also being brought on behalf of the mother of an autistic teenager of 15 who was born Katie but who now prefers to be called John who is currently on the waiting list for treatment at the service. Again and again, autistic children are found to want to change gender. There's, there is an autistic element to all this. The mother, who is known as Mrs A to protect her child's identity, and Miss Evans will argue that children under the age of 18 cannot give valid consent to the administration of hormone blockers and cross-sex hormones. Miss Evans, who has also held the role of Senior Fellow in Education at the University of East London, has raised almost £28,000 online to fund legal costs and is not seeking compensation. In an interview with BBC Radio 4's Today programme, Miss Evans claimed that Tavistock was willing to offer drugs to children under 16 and even as young as 9 or 10. She said, when I was working within the service, what I found out fairly quickly was that some of the children were being referred to get hormones at a very young age. At the time it was 16. To me it seemed a young age, but they were maybe seen four or five times by some of the clinicians. I just couldn't see that enough psychological work had been done with the children. They've lowered the age group for this experimental treatment. It's an off-license treatment. The drug was not developed for the purpose for which it's being used. I used to feel concerned it was being given to 16-year-olds, but now the age limit has been lowered in children as young as perhaps 9 or 10 are being asked to give informed consent to a completely experimental treatment for which the long-term consequences are not known. The Tavistock will say the effects are fully reversible, but the truth is nobody knows that for sure. Miss Evans said that virtually 100% of the children who were started on the experimental blocker received cross-sex hormones, which is going to lead to much deeper difficulties in physical terms, perhaps leading to future infertility and interfering with sexual functioning virtually 100% and it's meant to be the best interest of the child. She added, I don't believe a child of 9 or 10 can possibly understand, no matter how clever they are, how mature they seem, what their future adult life will be like and also then what they are consenting to possibly giving up or the risk to their health. Miss Evans said more than 30% of children at the clinic are autistic, while many have suffered some form of trauma in their early lives and others are confused and socially anxious. She added, I think this rapid affirmation of fast-tracking after maybe four or five appointments needs to be questioned in the courts now. Miss Evans said, many children seen at the service will be completely convinced they are the other sex, but over time come to terms with who they are. Up to 90% of children could go without medicalization, she argued. 
writing on the CrowdJustice online page to raise funds, Mrs. A said, Why is it Mrs. A? Why didn't she use a real name? Is there a reason why? Anyway, I have deep concerns that the current clinical approach it gives means that my daughter will be subjected to an experimental treatment path that is not adequately regulated, where there are insufficient safeguards, where her autism will not be properly accounted for, and where no one, let alone my daughter, understands the risks and therefore cannot ensure informed consent is obtained. A spokesman for the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust said it is not appropriate for us to comment in detail in advance of any proposed legal proceedings. Gates is one of the longest established services of its type in the world with an international reputation for being cautious and considered. Our clinical interventions are laid out in nationally set service specifications. NHS England monitor our service very closely. The service has a high level of reported satisfaction and was rated good by the Care Quality Commission. While Tavistock, or rather the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, is said to be a British not-for-profit organisation which applies social science to contemporary issues and problems, what that means is social engineering. I named one of my episodes last year, Social Engineering, episode 55, part 2, after this practice of using data trawled from the various sources of information, nowadays massively including Silicon Valley, internet giants connected to the Pentagon. As I detail in pay-per-view and print the book I've just finished writing, which will be available soon, which is itself controlled by this Sabatine Frankist cult. To understand how to engineer society to advance the cult's agenda, ultimately, Social engineering perfectly describes this transgender phenomenon because the whole propaganda for transgender is social engineering. So it's no wonder that the name Tavistock would be associated with this story. If transgender activists were genuinely concerned about ending discrimination against transgender people and making life easier for them, they would not attack transgender people who have transitioned and regretted it and spoken out about their experiences, which would obviously be very helpful for others considering transition. But they do attack them. In fact, they attack them more than other people questioning transgender. Because it's not about helping people who feel they're in the wrong body. Who should get all the help and support they need. And I'm all for that. It's about pushing an agenda. Ultimately, the cult's agenda. Although the transgender activists won't know that. They're pushing their own agenda without realising it's also the cult's agenda. I've talked about the endless promotion of transgender in episode 8. And... What we're seeing now with transgender people who've transitioned and regretted it and spoken out about their experience is what lies in wait for every kid and everyone who transitions without being given access to information which would make them reconsider because it's not. And that's where the censorship comes in, not least from the Silicon Valley giants owned by the cult. And either we speak out on this, people being in a situation they wish they were not in because they've transitioned without being aware of what the consequences could be. For them alone, never mind the agenda reason behind the endless promotion of transgender, and standing up and speaking out is the answer. And the final subject this week is Ricky Gervais and the Golden Globes. This was brilliant, and there's a great article written about it by Sarah Vine in the Daily Mail. Sarah Vine, hooray for Ricky Gervais, the woke finder general who stormed the Golden Globes. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain that 2019 was the most woke year on record. Woke is the name, the grammatically incorrect name, should be awake. Woke for the politically correct, fake liberal left, anything to do with being apparently progressive, which is actually regressive when you look at it. Anyway, talked about that many times before. The article says, 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain 2019 was the most woke year on record. In no particular order, we enjoyed the increasingly shrill demands of Greta Thunberg. In no particular order, we enjoyed the increasingly shrill demands of Greta Thunberg. The Duchess of Sussex putting changemakers on the cover of Vogue. Joe identifies whatever you want. Swinson, Extinction Rebellion, the Marks and Spencer LGBT sandwich. Prince Harry announcing that only have two children to save the planet. And countless other examples of greater new right on virtue signaling. On and on it went, a great damp fog of wokeness threatening to engulf us all in its clagging embrace. At times it seemed as though every last atom of joy had been sucked out of the atmosphere, as though all notions of fun, mischief, irony or sarcasm were destined to become distant memories, surviving only on dusty bookshelves and reruns of Little Britain. Because political correctness does not do humour, this woke mentality doesn't do humour. And then out of nowhere, like a knight in shining armour, comes Ricky Gervais, a more unlikely savoury of humanity one could barely imagine. Pallid, middle-aged Ricky with his bad teeth and nervous grin. Nevertheless, there he stands, saviour of comedy, restorer of sanity, banisher of baloneyanism of Sunday night, Hollywood's undisputed work finder general. The speech she delivered to the audience at the Golden Globes was brass, brutal, highly offensive in parts and bang on the money. It tanked with the celebrities in the room, but to those outside the bubble, ordinary people sick and tired of being lectured to endlessly by limousine liberals and sulky schoolgirls, it was a real barnstormer. There was something almost Churchillian about the passion with which Gervais delivered his diatribe. This was not just a good-natured ribbing, there was a sharp edge of viciousness, a fine line between comedy and cruelty that few save Gervais know how to tread. Even for a man as seemingly immune to the mood of an audience as he, it must have taken every ounce of his brazen courage to press on through the gasp and jaw-dropping disapproval. Let's have a laugh at your expense. Remember, they're just jokes. We're all going to die soon, and there's no sequel. Remember that, he began. I don't necessarily agree there's no sequel myself, but unlike the woke, I have no problem with someone else saying they think there is no sequel. Gervais insulted everyone with equal impunity. Joe Pesci, Baby Yoda, the industry... An actor's job isn't acting anymore. He's going to the gym twice a day and taking steroids. His colleagues, the world got to see James Corden as a fat pussy. He was also in the movie Cats. He finished with an impassioned plea. If you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a platform to make a political speech. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greater Thunberg. Hollywood rallied in condemnation. Others speculated that it had all been pre-agreed and Gervais was simply playing a part. Who knows? Who cares? It was magnificent. Every line and rapier sharp jab in the ribs of the self-satisfied, self-selecting, self-congratulatory group in his sights. I mean, these are some of the richest people in the world and in show business in general. Why should they not be subject to banter and jokes about them now and then? It was also, for me, says the writer, something of a message of hope for the coming year. A sign, if you like, that we might yet see the beginning of the end of the manufactured hysteria that has held our culture in its grip for much of the past decade, narrowing the parameters of human experience in the name of inclusivity, which is often expressed as exclusivity. Narrowing the parameters of human experience in the name of inclusivity while at the same time shutting out all who show even a scintilla of dissent. Already the green shoots of recovery are starting to show. Like many, I watched Dracula on BBC One, as full-throated and as unwoke an interpretation as I could have imagined, and all the better for it. Interesting point on Dracula there, because one of the writers of Dracula used to write Doctor Who, and he left just as Doctor Who became as woke as it's possible to be. And he's been a fan of Doctor Who since he was a kid. He wrote his first story when he was... I wonder if he left because he could see where it was going and he didn't want to turn his boyhood favourite show into that. I don't know. 
but there is more work to do on this side of the pond. Note the pearl-clutching reaction on BBC Radio yesterday to the fact that films starring white people are in so many BAFTA nominations. Perhaps Ricky Gervais could be persuaded to come home and get stuck in here too. After all, Lord Hall's tenure in charge of the BBC is almost over, and no one can say Gervais doesn't have experience of running an office. That's a brilliant article there from Sarah Vine, and we are in a time now where we do need to stand up and say what needs saying without worrying about the consequences, because if we don't, then the end of freedom lies that way. And saying what needs saying is exactly what I continue to intend to do with pay-per-view. So, that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the context and connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.